What happened next is a story oft-repeated and repeatedly forgotten. A burning bush, a stick turned to a snake, a leprous hand, a lot of back and forth, and ten plagues later, Israel finally tasted freedom when Moses led them out of Egypt. Years after, some would say they could still smell the salt mist swirling violently up from the parted Red Sea, could still see Miriam leading the women in a dance with their timbrels after the waters closed in on the chariots, could still taste the provision of manna and quail in the wilderness. But the memories faded, and we soon forgot all that God had done. We lost faith, lost direction, and wandered around complaining for years. To get us back on track, God gave 613 commandments, the law, a cartography for how to move safely and healthily through a savage and sick world, a guidebook for worship and holidays, all of which were kind of a, a sensory overload. Incense in the tabernacle, the smoke of burnt offerings on the altar, the blasting of trumpets, the eating of bitter herbs in the Passover feast. After many wars and heartaches and miracles, God's people at last made their home in a land flowing with milk and honey. A boy who spent his days in the field with sheep played the harp before a brooding king. He later exchanged the peat animal stink in his hair for the cinnamon and cassia aromas of the holy anointing oil poured over his head when he himself became king. It was later foretold that a very special king would come from the line of David who would save us from our oppressors once and for all. People took this very literally, which led to a lot of confusion, and in general, having earthly kings was a headache that ended in disaster. Remember those inimitable luminous eyes we talked about at the beginning? The ones that can wander? They did. Under a series of bad kings, they drifted to and worshipped false gods of the surrounding nations, Baal, Ashtoreth, Dagon, Marduk. They tempt us still to this day, we just call them by different names. This led to a new kind of sensory overload, the cup of staggering, the stench of death and the massacre of Jerusalem, smoke rising from the ashes of Solomon's temple destroyed, the wailing of God's people as the Babylonians carried us into exile, cut off from our land of promise. On the banks of the Euphrates River, we were so homesick that not even singing songs from the old country could lift up our spirits anymore. So we hung up our instruments in the willow trees, heaped ashes on our heads and wept. Our captors wanted to torment us, so they taunted, their acidic hot breath like toxic vapor demanding in our ears, show a little mirth. Come on, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Our mouths went dry, our souls went dry. Where was he? This supposed conquering king from the line of David. How long would he hide his face? This rod of Jesse, this key of David. Who would pay our ransom? So a question for you today. This is a real deep theological question. You sense the sarcasm in my voice. I want to hear from you all at once your favorite Christmas food. Okay, on three, say it out loud. One, two, three. Homemade ice cream. Well, not bad. I wasn't really paying attention, but I don't think I heard anybody say lutefisk or was. Oh, there it is. Lutefisk is back there. You guys went to Lake Beauty for the lutefisk feed. 
I'm sorry. Lefsa, yes, absolutely. Well, the one thing I said was homemade ice cream. Um, homemade ice cream has, has been in the Friedline tradition since I was a wee little lad. Um, I always remember my grandpa Friedline and then my dad being down in the basement, you know, making the homemade ice cream. In fact, when uh, our oldest son was only about 18 months old, we were downstairs making the ice cream. You know, back in that time, we cranked it, you know, not like those electric things that you have nowadays. So we were making, taking turns, cranking, and got done, and pulled the ice cream out, and you pulled the dasher out, and you're cleaning that off. Of course, if you cranked, you got to taste it early, you know, that's the privileges of being down there and working so hard. And I had my Jordan Long again, 18 months, and I grabbed a little ice cream on the spoon, and I was going to give it to him, and he was like, Aah. so I just tapped it on his lip, and he goes, <laughs> and he was like, give me more. Well, it's kind of funny because I remember one year I was, you know, okay, ice cream was being made, and I wasn't part of the making process, but I was going to definitely be part of the eating process. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I'm getting my bowl of ice cream, and I'm sitting down, and I'm ready to eat, and I'm eating my ice cream, and all of a sudden it was just like, yeah, okay, so there's something different about this ice cream. It, it's not tasting as good. So I didn't really bring it up because, you know, it, my mom usually gets all the ingredients, and she kind of, you know, puts it all in the thing, gets it mixed, and my dad takes it downstairs. And so I didn't want to question my mom. You know, I mean, she's an amazing cook. Uh, and so later on, some, you know, we're, most everybody's gone home and we're just kind of hanging out. And I said, you know, there's something weird about the ice cream. And my mom goes, yeah, so your cousin brought the ingredients. She volunteered to bring them. And she bring, uh, part of what she brought was this, instead of using eggs, she had gotten the pasteurized eggs that are in a carton and use those in, instead. And then, you know, she kind of, instead of bringing the, the heavy whipping cream, you know, she brings some lighter cream. Okay, you don't need ice cream for health. <laughs> right? So use the real eggs. Use the heavy whipping cream. Because you only get it about once or twice a year. Well, you know, we're all kind of, um, you know, we all have our food stuff that we maybe are kind of snobbish on or we maybe kind of have particulars. I mean, you know, like for Terry, uh, cheese is her thing. I mean, she, we go into a restaurant and if she orders something that has cheese on it, she wants to know what kind of cheese because if it has American cheese, it's either can you put cheddar instead or I just don't order it. Now... Right? Now, there's a bunch of you out there I know are coffee snobs because I've talked to you. So I'm not the only one. Terry's not the only one. We all have things, foods that taste a certain way that we absolutely love. And don't you dare change those ingredients because uh, I know what the original tastes like. 
taste is part of, as we know, our sensory system. It's where we have our taste buds. Foods go in between our nose and the smell. And our taste buds, we, we get this aroma, this flavor that we enjoy. Taste, as a word, can also be used as associated kind of what the narrator did in the video today where he talked about the Israelites had tasted freedom. They had experienced slavery, but now they had tasted freedom. And so the question is, would they continue to desire that taste for freedom or would they go back to something else? For most of us, we have tasted a sense of freedom our whole life, so we kind of know what freedom is. And and when things push on what we believe is our freedom, we have a tendency to to push back. It's like, no, 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 no. This is our freedom. We're going to hang on to it. For others, it may be something more like just experiencing peace in life or hope or love, whatever it is, we know sometimes what the real peace is and what the counterfeit peace is, what the real freedom is, what the counterfeit freedom is. And so just like there are copycats and food items that aren't right on, so sometimes are our experiences of our faith, and our emotions. I was with a young man a little while ago, uh, and he was in a, this was in a small group setting, and this young man grew up in a Christian home, and a wife and three kids. He had started a, a company with two of his friends, and this company was successful, and yet he was filled with anxiety. I mean, it just... In every chapter of his life, he just seemed to be overflowing with anxiety. And he felt like he was a failure as a husband. He felt like he was a failure as a father. And he he felt like a failure sometimes, even in his business. And he was always afraid that if he made one mistake, especially in his business, if he made one mistake in his business, it could cause the business to go into turmoil and maybe they lose the business. And some of this was he felt like, if he made a mistake in his marriage or even in raising his kids, that everything would just be a mess. And so anxiety would just filled this man. In fact, if you saw this young man out in public, you wouldn't know it. But in this setting where we were dialoguing, this came out. And I asked him as we were sitting there to, to imagine himself being at work in his office. And I said, picture Jesus having a seat next to you. I said, in the midst of probably your most anxious moment, kind of picture that, and Jesus is sitting next to you, what would Jesus tell you or say to you if you turn to him and just go, Jesus, I don't know if I can handle this anymore. My anxiety is through the roof. What would Jesus say to you? And it was interesting because he said, I... I don't know what he'd say to me. And so I asked another gentleman in the group. This gentleman was an older sage, just a wealth of experience and depth in his relationship with God. I I asked him to kind of sit in the place of Jesus and I said, What just what would Jesus share with this young man? And so this older gentleman began to say to this young man, you are God's masterpiece. 
You are created in the image of God. And the Father wants you to know that you are His Son and He is well pleased with you. The young man broke down, burst into tears, and as he's sitting there crying, he says, uh, I, I don't believe that. I can't believe it. I can't believe that God would call me his son, that he would say he was pleased with me. This, again, is a young man raised in a Christian home, went on mission trips as a teenager, had experienced everything we think are key to a successful Christian life, and at the same time, in his journey, Satan began to plant seeds of lies that he was not worth being loved. And because of this deception and because of these lies, this young man had never really felt peace, never really truly tasted what it meant to be hopeful. There are some of you here in this room today that probably can relate to this story. Maybe, maybe it's a period of time in your past they went through. Maybe it's something you're experiencing today, but you have a big question mark about, does God really love me? How, how could God love me? Do you know what I've done? Do you know where I've come from? So you do what most of us do when we don't feel that way or we're not sure you strive to find and satisfy those desires for love and you try to deal with that anxiety in a way that the world tells you is the way to deal with it then maybe your life is a little bit of a mess so today as we continue this conversation about hope the hope of Advent. We're going to talk today about tasting the true hope of Advent. We know that hope is this feeling of expectation, this desire for something certain to happen. It's a, if for the Christian church and in our topic of the hope of Advent, it's hoping and expecting the Messiah to come. It's what the Israelites had hoped for for centuries. They had heard about this Messiah. They hoped that he would come. They knew that God had promised the Messiah, but they waited patiently. And even though the Israelites had tasted a sense of freedom and had tasted some Hope they continued to turn their appetites towards other things to satisfy them. As the video brought out, the, God led the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery and into freedom. And they're not long into freedom. And Moses is on the mountain of God. And what do they do? They make a golden calf. They received food, food from God in the wilderness. Yeah, it was manna and it was every day, but they didn't comprehend that, or they forgot that it was God that was providing for them, and so they complained and wanting other food. And then they got 
brought to the edge of the promised land. And God said, I will go before you into the promised land. And they turned back because of fear. And just a little while earlier, seven plagues, a parting of the Red Sea, going into the wilderness, and now they're at the doorstep of the promised land, and they forgot. So rather than going into the wilderness or into the promised land, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And then eventually God led them into the wilderness. Again, miracles. He went before them and they begin to long for a king. God had led them out of Egypt into freedom. God had led them through the wilderness. God had led them into the promised land. God had led them to take over the promised land. And now they're in the promised land. And now they want a king. So the people go to Samuel, who's the prophet at that time, and they tell Samuel, hey, we want a king. Go talk to God. We want a king. And so God, Samuel went to God and talked to him, and then God spoke back to Samuel and said this, And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Here, a group of people who had tasted real freedom and had understand to a certain extent what it meant to have real hope in trusting God, and now they were rejecting that God for a king, for a man. So God gave them what they wanted. Go figure. How often are we wanting something that is not the best for us, and God just says, okay, here you go. I'm going to give it to you. Sam and the prophet even tries to warn the people and says, okay, so here's what this king's going to do. He's going to take your sons and take them to war. He's going to take your daughters and take them into his household. He's going to take 10% of your crops and he's going to take the best of your livestock. He's going to, in essence, make you his slaves. You will be under his rule. So how did they respond? But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. But the king to lead us and to go before, out before us and fight for us. This is coming from a group of people who had God lead them out of Egypt into freedom, had God lead them into the promised land, a God who went before them and did the battles for them, and now they wanted a man. And I think it's interesting that they, instead of being what God wanted them to be, they wanted to be like everybody else. And we know the rest of the story. God gave them a king, Sure, there was King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, but there were many more kings that led Israel away from God. 
and they forgot what real freedom looks like. So the Israelites were putting their hope in something else, and they were looking for freedom in a man. But the Israelites of the Old Testament aren't the only ones that do it. In fact, the disciples had a problem with it too. They wanted to find the Messiah. They were looking for the Messiah, but the Messiah they were looking for and the Messiah that came were two different things. In fact, there's a little story in Mark chapter 8 that we are going to look at. Mark chapter 8, starting with verse 31. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's saying, so who do the people say I am? And oh, they say you're Elijah or somebody else. And then Jesus asks him, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus said, right. And then Jesus goes on and he says this, starting in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, for us, we go... Yo, Peter, who do you think you are? I mean, let's talk about a Jewish term. He's got a lot of chutzpah, right? Hey, Jesus, I got a little something to straighten out with you. I need to rebuke you right now. We think it's crazy because we look back, we, we come from this perspective of we know that Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, we know that this dying and rising again and sitting at the rest, that's all part of God's plan. We're, and we, we've been taught that from the time we were young or, or whenever in our journey. So we know that. But for the disciples that followed Jesus, their picture of a Messiah was King David. And they expected the Messiah to come, raise up an army, destroy the Romans, Reestablish the king, the throne of David in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, Jesus talking about he's going to be persecuted. He's going to be killed. Okay, Jesus, this is not the plan. Goes on in verse 33, but when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter. Okay, you're going to rebuke me. Well, here we go. But look at what he says. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. That's major. I mean, it's one thing to tell Peter, hey, Peter, you're a little off. It's another thing to say, get behind me, Satan. And then he says, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see the theme? It continues, Old Testament Israel, right into when Jesus arrives. Jesus sees 
the lie of Satan at work here. Satan has deceived Peter and the other followers of Jesus into thinking the Messiah was going to ride in on a horse, wipe out the Romans, and set up his kingdom. That is human concerns. So Jesus does deal with it how it should be dealt with. It's a lie from Satan. It's a deception. So call it out as it is. Get behind me, Satan. This is why, for me, I'm so excited about this sermon series coming up in January called The Great Deception. Because in this series, we're going to be talking about this right here. That all of us are deceived in one way or another by the evil one. Satan is the father of lies, okay? He is the father of lies. And so he gives us deception. That deception feeds into my disordered self. My disordered passions and desires. And I get off whack because this is my disordered desire and he feeds right into it. Now, Satan doesn't, he's not going to come up to me and, you know, whisper in my ear, you know, this kind of thing. Hey, Elvis is really alive. Because I, yeah, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to believe that. But he will come in and whisper, does did God really say that? Why do I know that? Because that's the lie that's been going on since Adam and Eve. This is part of our problem as humanity. We all desire happiness. We all desire pain-free living. We all desire freedom to do what we want and so Satan feeds that with deception. So the question is, how do, um, how do I taste the true hope of Advent? How do I get beyond the deception into what is true? I'm so glad you asked. The thing is, is that Peter, or Jesus doesn't leave Peter hanging right here and saying, get behind me, Satan. He doesn't end it right there. We move on to verse 34. Then he called, Jesus called to the crowd, to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The solution to Peter's problem, and thus ours, begins with denying self. problem we have is that doesn't sell very well in our culture. For me, for Peter, 
That means desire, de, um, denying his desire for the Messiah to be this king that kicks butt all over the Romans and establishes Israel as the biggest nation in the world with Jesus on the throne. That's Peter's desire. Satan is feeding it. So Peter's got to deny that. The cool thing is, and we know this, is that Peter eventually sees it. He eventually sees that what the kingdom of God is really like. And he will become a leader in this movement that transformed the world. Go figure. Jesus did take over the world. But he did it because he died, he rose again, and now he sits in the right hand of God the Father, and he gave us the Spirit of God, and he, we are his army, and we are to go out and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. So what is it that I need to deny? What part of myself am I still hanging on to? Is it material possessions? Is it position of power? Is it being with a certain group of people? Whatever it is, that's a conversation between you and God because my disordered desires are different than yours. And so Satan's going to get after me in a different way than he's going to get after you. So you have to have that conversation with God. And there's one other thing we need to remember. How do we taste the true hope of Advent? Not only denying self, but we have to remember that it's for the gospel. This hope of the coming of the Messiah is for the good news of Jesus Christ. Whether, it, whether it's at work or at school, it's in my neighborhood, it's all about proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not about me and my desires and my needs. about what's for the kingdom of God. What is God doing? Later on in Mark, Jesus is approached by a young man, and, and we, we know this story, and we know this story sometimes as the rich young man, and this rich young man comes up and says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God or inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law. And the man says, well, all of those things I've kept, he's perfect. And Jesus, and I love the way Mark puts this in chapter 10, he says, Jesus looked at him with love. And he says, one thing you lack, go sell everything and follow me. The man was disheartened. He went away sorrowful because he had lots of possessions. In other words, this man did not understand what it means to deny himself and follow Jesus. His hope was in a false coming of the Messiah, meaning Messiah, if he just did everything right and not trusting in the kingdom of God. Tasting the true hope of Advent will cost you everything. Let me say that again. Tasting the true Hope of Advent means you must be willing to give up everything. Let 
The disciples were so shocked by what Jesus said to this young man about selling everything that they're like, okay, so who can be saved? If it's that hard, who can be saved? And Jesus said, ah, hey, with man it's impossible. With God it's not impossible. For all things are possible with God. And Peter goes, well, we did leave everything. And Jesus then says, here here comes our hope. Here's what, what Jesus says. And this is the promise that we need to hang on to. Mark 10. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and his gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, a little sub-thing here, along with persecutions, let's not forget that, and in the age to come eternal life. The promise Jesus is giving. If you deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, the promise is this, whatever you give up, trust me, whether it's in this life or the life to come, and some persecutions, let's not forget that, you will receive it all back. Now, this is not a health wealth message, and this is not a, here's what it's going to look like, but this is a promise. What I mean by it is not, not what it looks like. If you give up your house and you give your house away, it doesn't mean that somebody else is going to give you a house, but God will take care of you if you do that kind of thing. But again, if that is what God has called you to do, it's crazy, Terry and I, uh, sometimes we get this right, sometimes we don't. But there's been a number of times in our journey where we have given up stuff because, because of the kingdom. Because God has asked us. I mean, whether it's going to Mexico and living at an orphanage for four months because the crazy thing, we didn't know why we were going there, but Clearly, the director needed a break, and we learned how to run the orphanage, and we ran it for a couple months so that this guy could have a break. He hadn't had one in 12 years. We, we've made those other kind of decisions. Today, we're beginning to experience just a little bit of receiving some stuff back because of the sacrifices we made early on. Now, And this isn't about stroking us. This is about... I. I have hung on to this my whole life, this passage. Not expecting God to fill my bank account with a ton of money or give me whatever. That's not my expectations. My expectation is this. Father, I'm going to deny myself and I'm going to follow you. You promise in your word that when I do that, in this life and the life to come, I'm going to receive it all back. Oh yeah, and by the way, I am going to experience persecution. And we have. And Jesus says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Tasting the true hope of Advent really only comes as I learn to deny myself and follow Jesus. So the question is, will we be like Peter, who eventually does grasp that? Will we trust?
trust the Father and His Word in every area of our life. Then you will begin to taste the true hope of the coming of the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. And Father, forgive us for when we allow the deception of the evil one to feed into our disordered desires and we take our eyes off of you. Today we choose to follow you. Teach us what it means to deny myself today, to pick my cross up and to follow you. Help us to be a people that does that for your glory, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.